0: This morning's reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, and 13, 8 to 10. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son In the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. You shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Jesus, Christ. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. The Gospel of Christ.
2: So remain standing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us this morning. We'd ask that your Spirit would be given freedom in our midst to heal, to comfort, to teach, to restore, to love, to ultimately point to the love you have for us in Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? I wrestled deeply with the sermon this week, more so than usual, for some of what I was reading and praying through brought to the surface how the church has disastrously navigated the topic of sex. I thought of my own upbringing in the church youth group, Christian camp, within the stream of evangelical Christianity, a stream that I know that many of you have come from, and so this may be part of your story as well. I came of age in the 90s, and it was a time in the church where purity culture was being formed. There was a true love waits movement. There were purity pledges and purity rings, where the Christian ethic of saving sex for marriage was motivated by fear. Don't do it. You'll get a disease. You'll get pregnant. You'll ruin a future marriage. It was a season where misogyny was given a God stamp as the gender double standard around sex was spiritually cemented and where women were held responsible for the sexual urges of men. We were told, don't dress that way, don't talk that way. One of the prophets of the movement was a young man named Joshua Harris. He wrote a book entitled, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It sold well over a million copies. Some of you may have read it. And he argued that if we're going to save sex for marriage, then we need to think, rethink uh, dating altogether, perhaps even rethink kissing before marriage, because you don't want to open a door that you can't then close. And even if you couldn't go there with him, I remember the conversations in youth group at the time, how far is too far? It formed a generation of Jesus followers who were in the area of sex, felt little more than shame, and guilt. The central central message seemed to be, sex is bad. Squelch your passions. On the other hand, we had a culture who for generations had held that same sex ethic, sex reserved for marriage. But then coming out of the sexual revolution had rejected it. And the cultural current of the time became Sex is just one of life's natural appetites, and it's deeply unhealthy to repress your desires, so indulge them. The only ethic to worry about in this area would be consent. Now, as with any pendulum swing, our reaction to something harmful on one end often leads us to fall into harm on the other. And I read a number of articles this week written by psychologists, sociologists, and counselors who were reflecting on the harm such unbridled passions were having on individuals, relationships, and society as a whole. A lot of the articles were reflecting on pornography, for instance. It's now legal, accessible, available, with the internet's perceived anonymity. And a recent study said that 90% of men and 70% of women regularly engage with it. 50% of men, 20% of women say that their engagement, they would describe as addictive. And The stats are no different in the church and so no different in this room. And as a result, we have a generation whose relationships with sex are being informed by pornography. And the articles were saying, well, this, this is utterly disastrous. Violence, particularly against women, is being normalized. It's forming in people this crushingly unrealistic expectations of physical appearance and sexual performance. It's diminishing in people tolerance for the difficulties of real relationships. And partners are feeling forced to accommodate sexual behaviors that are being informed by pornography. So on one hand, the church said sex is bad, squelch your passions. And the culture said sex is just one of life's natural appetites. Indulge your passions. And there was and is deep hurt on both sides. Now, living in the aftermath of that pendulum swing brings much confusion. Where do we go from here? How do we navigate our own sexual appetites? What advice should I give to friends who come to to me for support? As parents and grandparents, how do we navigate this conversation with our kids, our grandkids? Now, why am I going here? Not an easy topic to talk about. Because Jesus takes us here. Uh, We're making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus wades into how a kingdom people will navigate sexual relationship and appetite. So I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, or open up your phone, or grab that pew Bible in front of you. You can turn to page 4. You have the New Testament. It's Matthew chapter 5. And we'll pick up at verse 27. I'll make, as you're turning there, two preliminary observations. The first... This teaching of Jesus sits in the context of the whole of Scripture. And Scripture throughout affirms the gift and goodness of sexual desire. In fact, an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, is given over to celebrating and firming it. And as I understand it, our English translators completely wimp out on translating the Hebrew in its fullness. This affirmation and celebration of the goodness of sexual desire is a much-needed starting point. Second observation. As I said last week, and must affirm again, love is the fulfilling of the law. What the law is really after is love. And so when Jesus invites us to a certain way of navigating sexual relationships and appetites, he does so because he loves us. He knows us, knows how we're made, knows how humanity is meant to flourish. So speaks this way because he loves us. Now with those two needed observations, we can hear Jesus' second example of how we are to live in step with God's law, live into a new humanity, live in sync with new creation, with his kingdom. His first line sets up a comparison. You have heard that it was said. It's a phrase that's inviting his listeners to consider how the religious leaders interpreted the command to them. You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. What is adultery? Having sex with someone who's married, right? Being married, having sex with someone who's not your spouse. Not being married, having sex with someone who is. It's adultery. Well, yes, that's certainly what it is. But the command gets after the heart of the created purpose for sex. Genesis introduces, Jesus affirms, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Two become one. That's the purpose of sex. Two becoming one. It's an integrative act. It's combining the totality of one with the totality of another. And the Bible has a word for this. It calls it covenant. The covenant of marriage. Adultery, then, is sex where there is no covenant. It's saying, I want to have sex with you, but I don't want to be one with you. I want to keep my options open, play the field, not get tied down, not have you impact my lifelong decisions. It's doing with your body what you would be unwilling to do with the rest of your life. It's being physically naked with another without also being personally, emotionally, financially, spiritually. On the other hand, when you have sex within covenant, you're saying, I've pledged myself to you completely, exclusively, and I'm acting that out. I'm giving you my body as a token of how I've given to you everything else. John White, a Canadian psychiatrist, writes this. Erotic pleasure is the most superficial benefit of sex. It's a delight, but only of a moment. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies it can be both profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. It symbolizes the uncovering of our inner selves, our deepest fears and yearnings. It makes sense, then, that sex can be confined to marriage, for acceptance and mutual disclosure are not the activities of a moment, but the delicate fabric of a lifetime's weaving. Two becoming one. Before I came to Little T, I was an associate at another church here in the city, and one of my responsibilities was to prepare couples for marriage. And one of the portions of that preparation was to lead a course, and we used the Alpha pre-marriage course. And they were videos that were led by Nick and Scylla Lee, One of the sections was around sex within covenant, and Nick and Silla told their story, how they met and fell in love and started sleeping together. And then over the course of their dating, they started to go to church and became followers of Jesus and began to ask themselves the question, well, what does this mean for our sexual relationship? And so together they made a commitment not to have sex again until marriage, and they reflected on how that impacted their dating relationship. However, other aspects of intimacy began to delightfully flourish in the absence of sex as they weren't relying upon it to build that intimacy. It was a very winsome presentation, not judgy or legalistic. They were just telling their story. Now, right after that section, there was a planned activity where I stopped the video and invited the couples to to talk with one another about what that might look like for them And surveying the room, the Christian couples were looking rather grumpy. (laughs) There was disagreement, not only with the traditional sex ethic, but in some cases with one another. But then the non-Christian couple in the room, the only one there, came up to me afterward and said, that was absolutely fantastic. That was brilliant. It gave us language for a decision that we had made, to not have sex before marriage, out of a desire to allow other aspects of intimacy to grow, to truly get to know one another, and allow sex to be the fruit of our coming together rather than the cause of it. For the number one reason couples who aren't married say they're having sex is to keep that relationship going. Sex is designed for covenant to becoming one. You have heard that it was said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. The Pharisees would say, I got that covered. No sex outside a covenant. Got my sexual appetites in order. Or do you, says Jesus. But I tell you, everyone who looks at another with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them in their hearts. Sexual desire, it's good. It's a gift given to us by God, but there's a difference between sexual desire born of love and that born of lust. And we know that there's a difference. C.S. Lewis reflected on it this way. He said, lust wants a pleasure for which another person happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. Love desires a person. Lust desires pleasure. Where love says, I love you, lust says, I love me, and I want you. Lust desires to possess. There's a difference between sexual desire born of love and that born of lust. Now, the Greek here, it's a little ambiguous, and I think consciously so, because it could also get translated, everyone who does something in order to get another to lust, It feels good when someone wants us, when they're interested in us. Our flirting, sexual innuendo, attire can all be consciously and unconsciously used to awaken lust in others. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Now, we could linger there. If you've heard sermons on this text before, this is often the piece that gets lingered on but I want to bring something else up to the surface that I think is absolutely central to what Jesus is saying here. When we think of lust, we immediately think of sex, right? But Jesus had ample words to point us clearly in that direction. And he uses none of those words. He uses the Greek word epithemeo, which means an over and above desire. And of the 60-odd times that it's used in the New Testament, only twice does it have anything to do with sex. It's used primarily of idolatry, false worship, most often connected with money. Ernest Becker won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death. And in it, he reflects on how secular people deal with the loss of belief in God now that we think we're here by accident and not created for purpose, how do we instill a sense of significance, of meaning in our lives? And one of the ways that Becker reflected was to say that we now look to sex and romantic love to give us that transcendence, a sense of meaning that we used to get from faith in God. We load up all of our deepest needs and longings into sex and romance. And he writes this. The failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is so much a part of our frustration. For no human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. However much we may idealize or idolize a partner, they will inevitably reflect earthly decay and imperfection. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate a love partner to that position We want to be rid of our faults, our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our existence is not in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. And needless to say, sex and romance cannot give us that. And I think that the church has participated in this idolatry, right? We put a God stamp on it, we hold up marriage to be the ideal way of life. Husband, wife, two kids, and a dog. Leaving singles and others who don't fit into that mold, feeling like second-class citizens in our midst, somehow less than. We too must repent of that idolatry. For a moment, I, I want you to picture your life like a circle. And you could have many things in that circle. Career, Money, sex, hobbies. But that circle can only have one center. And we were made to have God at the center. Epithumeo is taking one of those things in the circle and putting it at the center. Taking one of those good things and making them ultimate. And if we put anything other than God at the center of our lives, there will be an unraveling. Why? Because we will look to that thing to give us what only God can give us. Epithumeo will lead to unraveling. And this is where Jesus goes in our final verses. If your eye, your hand, causes you to sin, gouge it out, cut it off. For it's better that you would lose that member than for your whole body to go down into hell. Yikes. Yikes. Fire and brimstone. But Jesus' language immediately conjures up in our imagination something that I think is more informed by English literature than it is by the pages of Scripture. Because you see, hell translates the Greek word Gehenna, which translates the Hebrew word Valley of Hinnom, which was an actual place. It was a valley outside the city of Jerusalem where ancient peoples had worshipped the pagan god Moloch. And they worshipped that god through the burning of children. And so abhorrent was this practice that it was outlawed, and to ensure that for all time they never returned to it, that valley was cursed, and people used it as a garbage dump. Constant fires were burning. It was a place of decay and disintegration. And so, Gehenna was this evocative picture that became a source of a whole host of Hebrew idioms, as Jesus does here. Evocative picture, communicating a profound truth. Sex was good, powerful, intended for our flourishing, for two to become one. Yet, if we use it as it was not intended, or if we load into it the deepest longings of our hearts, placing it at the center... It will unravel, disintegrate. 20-odd years of being a pastor have grievously revealed this reality. The countless men and women I've encountered who've been deeply diminished by an addiction to pornography. Gehenna. Marriages torn apart by affairs, physical, emotional. Gehenna. The woman using sex to find affirmation of her beauty to feel loved and accepted and failed to find it and was taken advantage of by her many partners is now sitting in my office contemplating suicide. Gehenna. The man for whom pornography wasn't enough and began to venture downtown regularly to elicit unprotected sex from strangers. Gehenna. I would suspect that some of the deepest wounds present in all of our lives will have a sexual component to them. Gehenna. So what do we do? Well, Jesus says, cut it off, gouge it out. Meaning, address it quickly and deliberately. Our sexual appetites are all aroused by different things, right? This is going to mean different things for different people. It might mean putting accountability software on that computer or or phone, deleting that app, or unsubscribing from that channel. It might mean stop putting energy into those flirtatious interactions and instead put the energy into restoring the marriage. It might mean not creeping people from previous relationships on social media and fantasizing about what life could have been like if you'd stayed with them. It might mean putting a certain genre of literature aside, there are arousing yearnings that no one could satisfy, that will simply crush any potential suitor, gouge it out, cut it off. Now that input, I think, does have its place, but if we leave it there, it treats these things as a problem for which all that you need is self-discipline. And anyone who's found freedom from these realities knows that that's not all you need. Because it doesn't get after the underlying reasons that we go to some of those places. This week, I read an incredible book that was written by Jay Springer. It was called Unwanted. It was given to me by someone here. Jay is a, a mental health counselor helping others navigate their own unwanted sexual behaviors. And he invites his readers out of his clinical experience to be curious about their lusts, for it will expose a need to be filled, perhaps a holy yearning for belonging to be known, to be loved, to be accepted, or it might reveal some wounds that need healing. Springer highlighted that shame was one of the most consistent drivers. Someone or something has made you feel unwanted, unworthy of belonging, perhaps born of abuse, bullying, neglect. And we go to some of those unwanted sexual behaviors to deal with the shame and yet find that it just grows. Alongside shame were drivers of futility Loneliness, frustration, feeling out of control, one or many of those might be present, but once we recognize something that sits behind those things, what do we do with it? Thomas Chalmers was a famous Scottish preacher, and he wrote an incredible sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, where he essentially says, Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by a force of mental determination. We can't will these things out. Self-discipline is not all that's needed. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. And the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is with the expulsive power of a new one. Let me illustrate that. I had a close friend whose wife left him for another man after a long history of infidelity. And he began to drink and eat his sorrows. He gained a ton of weight. Health began to crater, and the drinking was causing other problems in his life. And in love, his friends came around him and said, you've got to rein this in. This is not going to end well. In anger, he completely ignored them then all of a sudden he had this new idea. He said, my wound is woman-shaped. It'll take a woman to heal that wound. So I want to meet someone, try for love again. But realizing that the drinking and the eating would be a barrier to that, he stopped drinking, began to exercise, changed his diet, dropped 40 pounds in a few months. It was the expulsive power of a new affection. In epithemeo, we load into sex, romance, transcendent questions of purpose and meaning. Am I loved? Do I belong? Am I accepted? Questions it was never intended to answer. And if we load such questions into it, use it as it was never intended, it will unravel us. But our hearts can't be left without an object of affection. There must be the expulsive power of a new one. And in the sermon, Chalmers invites us to receive the only affection that is able to expel all of the others. And that is the glorious love of God for us in Jesus. For the Teacher on the Mount is also the Lord on the Mount, the Savior on the Mount, who is able to address all of our transcendent questions, to meet the deepest longings of our hearts who loves us with an unimaginable love, who lavishes upon us forgiveness from the cross that will cover over shame and guilt, who heals our deepest wounds to make us whole, who in our futility gives us a glorious kingdom purpose. For when he is at the center, everything else in our lives takes its proper place. Sex is just sex, Romance is just romance. And his commands that we once saw as robbing joy are now sources of liberation, giving us freedom to flourish. For the one who teaches us this way does so because he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And he longs to make us whole. And boy, do we need to be made whole in this area. So let us go to him. Let us go to Jesus. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.